Indie Left, what is happening here? To check out independentleft.news. The Indie News Network. Indie Left News. Oh, hey, Indie Left. Independentleft.news. Great work. Indie Left News. The Independent Left. No, yeah. you know what we're doing? We're world building indie. Uh, indie. Indie left news. You were doing uh, the INN in recruiting. Indie news. Independent left news. Shout out to independent left news. Check out independent left news. At Kennedy News. I see indies in the chat. Hi, indie. Okay, great. Bye. Hi, everybody. It's Hot Mike Indie. And, and it's Reef. What's up, dude? Wow, Not much, man. Mister Energetic over here. Um, yeah, that. Yep. Don't go back and listen to that, folks, because I have no idea what the hell I just said. Thanks, Doctor Dave. Just because you drink a gallon and a half of coffee every second doesn't Woo! mean <laughs> you literally like. Like, does your? I mean, I know your coffee roast is Colombian, but is it that Colombian? Oh man, oh man, it's bouncing off know. the wall for sure. All right, I'll, I'll admit it. All right, I'm 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 pumped up to do this tonight for sure. Um, all right, let me let me minimize that so Reef doesn't see me surfing Twitter while we're doing this. Ah, it's Sunday night and we've got family here. Yeah, Ken had a great interview yesterday with with Doctor Cornell West. We had a couple of people in chat. Miguel and I were tag teaming on the uh, on the moderating, and uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, we had some some interesting characters there to uh, to handle and to deal with, and that wanted to change the conversation, but kept it focused and get asked some good questions. You see, hang on, let me put up the thing about pineapple and pizza. I saw something about that. Yeah, he's pineapple and pepperoni. Pineapple and pepperoni on mm -hmm. pizza. That is his preferred together. The sweet and the spicy, and I could totally see that. And I'm surprised that he that's not Curtis Mayfield's favorite kind of pepperoni pizza, you know. Um Yeah, little, you know, Dr. West, he's <laughs> he's he's great. I How can you not love Dr. West? Um I you know, He's not going to be president, and that's probably a good thing because for a lot of different reasons. But if he runs green, he's got my vote in New Jersey, I'll tell you right now. Miguel H., good morning, Sunday morning over on the Rumble. We are on Rumble both on INN and on um, Indie Left Media for Rumble and for Rockfin and for YouTube. And we're on Telegram. We're on everywhere. <clears throat> and we'll tell you that in a minute. But. All right. Um, give me a second. The actual fuck. One one whole second. Two seconds. There you go. All right. Go on dark. Three All seconds. Right. Fuck it. We do it live. All right. So, welcome everybody. To How do we miss that? We'll do it live. How do we miss that? Is a show featuring articles written by independent journalists who expose corruption, cover workers organizing, and environmental crises while challenging corporate establishment narratives and talking points. 
New episodes stream live Sunday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern on all of our channels, YouTube, Rumble, Twitch, Rockfin, Substack, Facebook, Telegram. And then we got a podcast usually published within a couple days on Spotify and iHeart, Amazon, Apple, Google, everywhere. Give us five-star rating there. I'm Indy, I'm co-host, and I am the founder and editor of the Indie Media Today Substack. I am the creator of the Indie Media Awards, and that check that out on on Twitter and everywhere else, indiemediaawards.com. Uh, co-host of <clears throat> American Tradition with Jesse Jett on INN. Producer for Bread and Circuses for INN. Executive producer for the Politics of Survival with Tara Reid on INN. And we're going to talk about Tara Reid later on tonight. Associate producer for the Misty Winston Show on TNT Radio. Yes, I help her book stuff and help her with her substack. So, associate producer. And I got this guy sitting next to me. He's he's Reef Breeland. Actually, he's sitting underneath me on the mobile, but next to me there. Hey, what's up? He's waving. Um, he is the technical director for INN and a co-founder, as am I. Um, creator, engineer, and co-host of INN News. Producer and stream engineer for the Politics of Survival with Tar Reid on INN. And producer with for Bitch with Comrade Misty, which is also going to be on INN. Um, both of us are co-founders of Indie News Network. That's INN, what we keep saying, INN, a collaborative family of independent content creators. INN. INN, how about that, INN? Find all our channels on IndieNews.network. I believe like Indie News, uh, INN.network also works, by the way. So you can actually go to INN.network and it'll go there. Uh, mm. Make sure to share the like, share share this link, like the stream, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to the channels on wherever you are and watch and listen. We are everywhere, and Reef is very busy setting something. Oh, he's setting up Bong Bong Cam right now. <clears throat> hey, and it's Bong Cam here. Let's go, big single on Reef with the fisheye lens, Bong Cam. I love it. Nice. Oh, yep. There you go. We'll All see right. If that works. Nice. We don't do singles very often, but figure, let me try that. I end and end. Nice. Appreciate that. Like, share, subscribe. Nah, 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 nah. All right. So we have our generic thumbnail. Let's go to that. All right. That's that's our AI, our new Reef versus Indie thumbnail. Like everybody calls it the gamer thumbnail for whatever reason. Very funny. Uh, love that. So we got some stories tonight. <laughs> uh, okay. So first story that we're going to get to is uh, CJ Hopkins. I love CJ Hopkins. So let's go back here. Take that off. Go back here. And let's go back here. He did something really cool this week. He did something really cool this week. He went, or last week, they went to, he went to London. Now he lives in Germany, traveled to London, and they went to an event with Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger and mm. Russell Brand was on stage. And <clears throat> so he's going to talk about that, but he's also going to talk about the real reason why he was in London, which was even more fascinating. So let's get to CJ's article, which is, Fear and Loathing in the City of Westminster. djhopkins.substack.com. Check that out. Oh, Gamer. Oz, what's up, guys? Hope you're feeling better, Oz. All right, so you have all of the Mickey Mouse, you know, 
similar faces in the crowd. But he says, our descent into City Airport was like the dropship scene in the movie Aliens. The BA City Flyer Embraer 190, a narrow-body twin-engine airliner, rolled over in a 40-degree bank and started bucking like a mechanical bull. Stimulated chimes began chiming frantically, and flight attendants bolted for their seats. The German businessman in the seat beside me, obviously a nervous flyer, immediately adopted the brace position. I gripped his shoulder reassuringly and shouted at his ear like a drunken redneck, We're on an express elevator to hell! Going down! Fucking love this guy. Mayday, mayday! <laughs> and so began my latest trip to London. This time I wasn't there to talk to the left or to hunt down uh, endoparasitoid xenomorphs, which he had done before. I was there on serious conspiracy theorist business, which I explained to the chirpy MI6 operative posing as a survey taker that followed me out of border control asking questions about my nation of residence and my experience with the passport scanners, and so on. She was wearing one of those rubber Mission Impossible mm. masks, that made her look like a middle-aged British woman and funny. As I waited for an opportunity, head fake, juked right, lost her in the crowd. And as I entered the arrivals library, I turned and shouted in her general direction, Not my first rodeo, Mr. Phelps. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what was up with all the shouting. I've been experimenting with different types of medication for the sinus condition I've had for months. My sinus specialist diagnosed me with long or possibly permanent COVID or some yet to be named debilitating syndrome caused by some other bioweapon that produces cold and flu-like symptoms and has a survival rate of 99.8%. So maybe it was a bad reaction to my meds. Whatever it was, I was feeling jumpy. <laughs> so good. And the climate change apocalypse didn't help. Emerging from the tube in Westminster was like walking into an enormous open-air sauna. Bodies were lying all around on the sidewalks. AFP photographers in hazmat suits were taking pictures of the carnage. Herds of corpulent American tourists staggered through the streets in semi-fugue states, sweating profusely and thumbing their phones like an invasion of alien albino hippos trying to call up their UAPs and arrange for immediate emergency extraction. So good. I pushed and shoved and elbowed my way down Tothill Street to my pod hotel, checked in, and proceeded to hopelessly get lost in the maze of identical Kubrickian hallways that eventually led me to my luxury pod and cleaned myself up for the night's festivities. <laughs> He's literally describing like dystopia in the future. It's great. He says, What I was doing back in London in the middle, what was I doing back in London in the middle of a heat wave? Well, Okay, I'm allowed to tell you about it now. As you're probably aware, Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, and Russell Brand were doing this public event last Thursday. So this was actually part one of it. I believe is available on Rumble right now. Really, I can't wait to see the other half of it. He says, but that's not really what I was there for. Not that Thursday, was, not that Thursday event wasn't fun. It was, despite the rather pricey tickets. There was a good-sized house, and spirits were high, right? Russell Brand was in top form, pouring out torrents of intellectual free association like an English Neil Cassidy and nailing the punchlines of all the jokes. <laughs> Michael was also firing on old cylinders, and he worked the house like a seasoned politician, whipping the crowd into a veritable frenzy of anti-totalitarian fervor. 
Stella Assange took the stage at one point and briefed us on the official crucifixion of her husband, which sadly now looks like a fait accompli. <clears throat> Matt. Yep. Free Julian Assange. Matt, who had just made yep. it to London that morning and was so jet-lagged and deliriously sleep-deprived, dispensed with the speech he had rewritten on the plane and just winged it and somehow pulled it off because that, as they say, is showbiz. And that's Matt, because he's ridiculous. Here's the money part of Matt's speech, which he paraphrased in London, emphasis mine, which is, quote, what Michael and I were looking at was something new, an internet age approach to political control that uses brute digital force to alter reality itself. We certainly saw plenty of examples of censorship and deplatforming and government collaboration in those efforts. However, it's clear that the idea behind the sweeping system of digital surveillance, combined with thousands or even millions of subtle rewards and punishments built into the online experience, is to condition people to censor themselves. Yeah, powerful. So yep. early the next morning, Michael, Matt, and a secret cabal of international journalists editors, political satirists, academics, and other very serious people whose names I'm not at liberty to mention, gathered in an undisclosed location and spent the better part of the day sharing harmful misinformation and strategizing about how to defeat or marginally disrupt the network of governments, intelligence agencies, global corporations, NGOs, and so-called disinformation experts known as the censorship industrial complex. There were delegates yep. from the United States, United Kingdom, Ireland, Germany, Italy, Spain, Brazil, Australia, Italy. New Zealand, Italy, and other yep. nominally sovereign, sovereign countries. This heretofore clandestine meeting was conducted in what appeared to be a World War II <laughs> era air raid War shelter, score. right? And, and, and seven years ago, a World War II era air raid shelter that had been converted into a private BDSM club under the military level OPSEC protocols, i.e. the meeting was conducted. According they to still the, use that. They they still use that alarm, though, at the BDSM club. Yes, they certainly do. That one, that, that air raid. That's that the meeting was conducted according to the yep. protocols, not the architectural conversion. So it's not a BDSM meeting. No. I'm not, unsure, I'm not entirely mm. sure why that was. We weren't doing anything even remotely illegal. However, given that I'm under criminal investigation here in Germany for tweeting the, the cover art of my book and the IRS's sudden interest in Matt and Kit Clarenberg's recent experience in Luton, perhaps the abundance of caution was warranted. Last thing we needed was the UK thought police goose-stepping in like Basil Fawlty and dragging everyone off to Room 101. So, yep. so good. Like, so snarky and hilarious and, yeah, poke him in the eye. Anyway, that's what I was there for. I had never met most of the people in attendance except online on the double-encrypted Russian-backed dark web conspiracy theorist channels where we hatch our right-wing extremist plots to defend people's rights, the freedom of speech, <laughs> <laughs> and engage in other harmful anti-democracy behaviors. I'm still not sure who I actually even met in London as we were all wearing identical Mickey Mouse masks and speaking through portable voice modifiers. In any secret meeting like this, you have to assume you've been infiltrated. <laughs> More than the, a Nixon mask in there? Come on, bro. Uh, I'm not a crook. Yeah. 
right? After the, after the obligatory arguing about the agenda, we settled in and, our, and shared our country reports, which, so unsurprisingly, were all variations on a theme. I won't go into all the details. Michael Schellenberger's nonprofit has been tracking these developments. Matt Taibbi and Racket News are reporting it. Other alternative media outlets like ours are reporting it. Millions of people around the world are talking about it, writing about it, and arguing with each other about it. Your Twitter feed is probably full of it. Alex Gutentag just published a huge article full about it. it. So what exactly is what what is it exactly that is going on? Well, the thing that was horrifying about listening to my colleagues reporting on the state of things in their countries, or rather, the thing that should be horrifying but is becoming a mundane fact of life is that more or less the same totalitarian program is being rolled out in countries throughout the world. The censorship, yep. the official propaganda, the, the criminalization of dissent, the pathologization of dissent. I probably said that. The pathologization of dissent. The manipulation of our perception of reality. The coordinated transformation of the world into a smiley-faced neo-Orwellian police state in which politics no longer matters because society's been divided into two basic classes, i.e. the normals, who are prepared to mindlessly follow orders, right, the normies, who are prepared to mindlessly follow orders and parrot whatever official narrative propaganda they're fed, and the deviants or the extremists who are not. Seriously, all satire aside, think about the implications of that. As you sit there in whichever nominally sovereign country you're sitting there reading this in, ask yourself, how and why is this happening? And then ask yourself, why is it happening now? If you do, not, if you do not have answers to these questions, it might behoove you to attempt to come up with some. That is basically what I've been trying to do in a satirical and sometimes not so satirical manner in these Consent Factory essays for the last seven years. I'm not going to summarize it all again here. I've done that repeatedly in my essays and books. I did it last time I visited London to give a talk at the Real Left Conference. I think we covered that and talked about that when he wrote an article about that too. I did it again at this gathering in London, yep. and it did not go over all that well. The thing is, most of us are laser-focused on the trees that we cannot see the forest. But our adversaries see the forest. They see the forest like fucking eagles. They own the fucking forest and everything in it. While we hop like squirrels from tree to tree, distracted from distraction by distraction, from limited hangout by limited hangout, they're building a big fucking fence around it all and deploying the forest ranger, whatever the hell they're called, that, that guy's called. Somebody with German would be able to. That's right. That's a good one. I'm not even going to try to butcher that one. So God bless you. <laughs> so CJ says, I'm reminded of the favor that infamous Carl Rove quote, and he was referring to the USA, of course, but it was really global cap, i.e. the corporatocracy that he was really speaking for, whether he knew it or not. That that's not the way the world really works anymore. We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And when you're studying that reality, judiciously, as you will, we'll act again, creating other new realities, which you can study too. And that's how things will yeah, sort this out. This guy sounds high. Oh, dude, Carl Rove is the worst. And we're we're in one reality, man, and 
we got like two realities within a reality, man. Dude, Carl anyway. Rove. Carl Rove was right. the architect of <laughs> the Bush administration. He was basically he created George W. Bush. Um, so he says, We're today's yeah. actors, and you, all of you, will just be left to study what we do. He says, uh, so CJ says that if we don't want to end up studying that reality, the global pathologized totalitarian reality that is becoming subtly and not so subtly implemented simultaneously in countries throughout the world. At some point, we'd better come up with some actual answers to those questions above. The supranational, globally hegemonic, post-ideological system of power that runs our world, whether you need to call it, whatever you need to call it, has answers to those questions. It has a story. It has a story about a a beneficent global empire governed by authoritative scientific experts who are trying to save the world from whatever and protect everyone from disinformation and harmful speech ideas and so on. And like every good story, it has an antagonist us. We are the official enemy, right? Left, libertarian, anarchist, Islamic, fundamentalist, Christian fundamentalist. It doesn't make one iota of difference. There is only the empire and those who oppose it. The empire does not give a shit why. Basically, it is conducting a global clear and hold operation, wiping out internal resistance and establishing ideological uniformity. It could not care less what you think you believe in. All it wants is mindless obedience and rote repetition of its propaganda. That's how totalitarianism works. And there I go with my story again. If anyone has a different story that makes sense of my last seven years and arguably the last 30 years, honestly, I'd love to hear it. My story fills me with fear and loathing. But the only other coherent story I'm hearing at the moment is the Empire story, and I think we all know how that one ends. Actually, I'm I'm not really sure how that one ends, but it's probably not going to be good for any of us. I can tell you that for sure. He could have thrown a disestablishmentarianism in there to really he, trip you up. He almost did, but so he had to add like a like a like yeah. a sub thing. So he says some some readers seem to be a bit unclear about the nature of the story I referred to in the piece. It's about the history of the post Cold War period, the early 1990s up till now. And he presented an extremely condensed version of it at a conference in London in April. And here it is again. And there's the link again. We covered that. We read that article about the new normal. So in order to understand, so you get quotes from that about, you know, from the article. And then he says, let's see, after that. Yeah, it's it's all just a quote from that article. Intermural competition. Yeah, yeah I mean, rest- we've been kind of saying this, though. This is, Like, a lot of this seems like, and I think we've both said this to each other and others multiple like, it's not necessarily that it's these fancy conspiracy anything or it's really just corporations doing what corporations do, except they've all made a front, essentially, of the 1% that are willing to have the rest of us die off as long as they're going to be all right. Well, so, they, they also have bought off the government, and now you've yes. got these massive hedge funds this, you know, the, these consolidated organizations like you're talking about, Vanguard, BlackRock. Yeah. <clears throat> and then it spreads out. It's the, it, the, the mm-hmm. World Economic Forum. 
Well, and then beyond like, that, you've got the Council the Center for, Foreign... for Inclusive Capitalism. Well, more than that is the Council for Foreign Relations. The CFR is really at the center of all of that. I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen that graphic, the World Economic Forum, and all these different things basically branch off of that. Um, censorship industrial complex it's, gets close yeah, to a new, it. A, new, a new world order. A new world order. The Illuminati. That's right, Dave Burt. Mm. Crazy, crazy shit over on the Rockfin. Thank you. Good to see you over here. Mouse H. Mouse SF. That's who, that, that's who I was talking about. Zombie in the air. What's going on? Infuriating that normies buy this mis misinformation crap. It is crazy. Zombie in the air. Oh, Juan Alba. Hola. What's going on, man? Welcome, welcome. Um, Robert Templeton, how are you? Good to see you over here. Good to see everyone. Dot com. Less of a squirrel, more of a lemur. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. <laughs> so um, we have got a couple of labor stories, and everybody loves the labor stories. It's kind of our thing over here at How Do We Miss That is one of the things we talk about. We talk about labor and workers. We talk about environment. We talk about corruption and censorship. And and we're going to talk about a lot of that tonight. So nurses are going on strike. It's all Wait. about geometry. It's all about geometry. Okay. Velvet trance. All right. So nurses. Booby. Nurses in California and Texas are going on strike. So. Wait, ah, see, let's try that again, folks, for, for the editing reel. Nurses in California and Texas are <laughs> going on strike as Reef is coughing his brains out. I love it. Nurse, nurses in California and Texas. Hey, hey, did you hear the nurses in California and Texas are going on strike? I might have at least three times. So National Nurses <laughs> United. Sorry, we didn't break the indie. Nurses in Texas and Kansas. Slightly. Oh, sorry. It was Kansas, not even California. See that? I was back on last week's stories. We nurses in, in Texas Kansas anymore. We, I thought not. But nurses in Texas and Kansas moved forward with historic strikes, resisting ascension union-busting tactics. So we've got nurses, and we love nurses. Shout out to our wonderful nurses. Um, Delilah Barrios actually was a nurse in Texas. I think she has since left the nursing profession. And it's one of the reasons it's, it's a grind. And what, what you're going to hear here is one of the reasons why. So 2000 Ascension nurses started striking on June 27th. It was supposed to be for one day. And it turned out that it wasn't just for one day. But 2000 Ascension nurses mm -hmm. will strike on June 27th for strong contracts to combat healthcare giants, unsafe staffing practices, which... We've also been talking about it for a long time, but not as much lately. Um, I've been talking about East Palestine and other environmental disasters, but <clears throat> this is also a real crisis, what's going on here with, with our nurses. So RNs in Texas and Canvas, Kansas at three Ascension hospitals are moving forward with... Uh, then what? The what? Then what? What did you say? You said You said not the thing that was written. You Freudian slipped there and said cannabis, but I digress. <laughs> did I really? Come on. <laughs> yes, Come on, you did. No. I think you. I you think absolutely you, did. I think you Freudian heard it because your name is. Reefer. Can the members in chat? Can the member? Can the members in chat confirm? 
that I'm not crazy. Yeah, type one if you um, heard <laughs> cannabis. Type two if you heard cannabis. <laughs> Registered Kansas. nurses. Let's. No, re- I think you flubbed one of those. Nice. Registered nurses <laughs> in Texas and Kansas at three Ascension hospitals are moving forward oh. with historic one-day strikes on Tuesday, June 27. The protest management's resistance to bargain in good faith with RNs for union contracts that would help correct the endemic staffing crisis, which was announced by NNU and NNOC. All right, driven by their concerns about patient safety, these will be the largest nurse strikes in Texas and Kansas history, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Yeah. Negatory. See, oh, see, Gabert says that I did say that, and Desert Manta says no. So let's see. Somebody's going to have to clip it now. If I did say cannabis, that's great. Texas and cannabis is awesome. (laughs) All right. Yep. Ascension Management's punitive three-day lockout of nurses who go on strike has failed to intimidate them, <laughs> which is what they did after, and they actually did uh, that. Um, just rewound. Can confirm it was cannabis. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm not. I'm not crazy. I love that you heard that. Who? Oh, oh yeah, Council yeah, yeah. Foreign Relations. Yes, David. Two thousand between the two states. Right. Yes, that is. Uh, yes, 2,000 registered nurses at these three hospitals, correct. There is now even greater momentum and motivation to speak out and demand management and negotiate first contracts with its RNs to improve the health of their patients and communities. Management's retaliatory threats are despicable, but union nurses won't give up our fight. Union nurses won't give up on our fight for our patients, says Chris Fuentes, a registered nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit at Ascension Seton Medical Center in Austin, or Ascension Seton. Ascension's dangerous staffing practices disrupt our ability to provide quality care and put our patients at risk every day. I love hearing that from a nurse. This is a clear sign that Ascension would rather use its vast resources to delay improvement than to invest in the care our patients and our communities deserve with appropriate staffing. So they talk about a timeline of what, what had happened. Um, and this was it some of the one. stuff about the strikes. The strikes come after Ascension repeatedly dismissed nurses' solutions for patient safety during contract negotiations, including their proposals to enforce safe staffing and improve nurse recruitment and retention. That that seems like it helped. So Nicholas Whitehead, uh, who's an RN in the surgery unit at St. Francis Hospital, uh, he says of the hospital chain, Ascension management is shortchanging its nurses and patients. Um, Ascension doesn't pay federal taxes because it's a nonprofit. So while they claim to provide spiritually centered holistic care, Nurses' experiences reflect the reality of Ascension's hypocrisy. Wait a minute. Mm. They're a nonprofit? Okay, well, let's see what's going on. We're nonprofit. Non- <clears throat> We've covered nonprofit we hospitals. We've covered nonprofit hospitals shafting workers before, but not necessarily shafting their executive yeah. board. So let's see what's going on here. Ascension's own mission to sustain and improve the health of individuals and communities. Yeah, right. So in the past year, Ascension nurses have made history creating some of the largest private sector nurse unions in states with laws hostile to worker organizing. 
That's pretty substantial. Driving the surge of unionization yep. at Ascension is the blatant hypocrisy of the nonprofit Catholic hospital chain, one of the nation's largest, that has $19.5 billion in cash reserves, an investment arm that manages $41 billion, and a private equity operation worth a $1 billion. $1 billion. A private equity operation from a nonprofit Catholic hospital chain. I don't hear your doctor. I don't hear your Doctor Evil sounds if you're playing them. Chronic short staffing. Yeah, that was a little low. But chronic short staffing imposed by Ascension Hospital Management, which is a practice that began well before COVID pandemic to boost profits and executive compensation. Worse, makes it challenging for nurses to provide the highest quality care to their patients because it drastically limits how much time a nurse can spend on the, on each patient. Short staffing also creates a revolving door of nursing staff who suffer moral injury and distress because they can't provide the care they know results in the best patient outcomes. That's kind of what happened to our friend Delilah. Nurses are patient advocates at the bedside and when we need to be on the strike line. And that's uh, an RN in the ICU at St. Joseph's Hospital, Carol Samsel. Union nurses are ready to stand united against these conditions, which are driving away both veteran nurses whom we need to ensure the highest standards of care, but also new graduates who are necessary for the sustainability of our profession. I mean, it's, it's really a crisis. So the latest data from the BLS and National Council of State Boards of Nursing shows that in Texas, Kansas, and across the country, there is no nurse shortage. In fact, in Texas, there are nearly 128,000 RNs with active licenses who are choosing not to work at the bedside. While in Kansas, a much smaller state by population, that number is almost 20,000. Nationwide, there are more than a million RNs with active licenses who are choosing not to work at the bedside because of the hospital industry's unsafe working conditions. And more data and information debunking the North the nurse shortage myth can be found at this link, which you can find at nnu.org, nationalnursesunited.org. We'll put that in the description afterwards. So <clears throat> they're going to talk about just how badly Ascension has been profiteering. So the conditions driving Austin and Wichita nurses to take unprecedented collective action at their hospitals are part of a broader pattern of Ascension negligence and greed. This is really important because nurses don't want to strike. Nurses want to care for patients. The last thing these nurses want to do yep. is go out on strike. Like this is literally a last resort for them. They just, they feel like they're not being listened to and they literally have no other choice. So not only these actions a direct contradiction to the directives of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops for Catholic Healthcare Organizations, they've garnered the scrutiny nope. of local and national news media and, and state and federal regulators. So they've got investigations from November 21 and December 22. A couple of them, two separate reports in January 23 from Milwaukee. I think that's the one that we showed with disruptions to patient care long wait times in the emergency rooms, delayed surgeries, staff concerns about patient safety. 
And remember there was like one where they had no nurses like for 24 hours because of the, the handoff in yep. um, business from one company to the other. There was some kind of a sale or something and everyone got laid off and then they had to be rehired and it was a whole mess. All right. Lawsuits. And in a February later to their CEO by Tammy Baldwin called into question their nonprofit status and mission-driven values. Yeah, but they didn't actually do anything about it, but a strongly worded letter. And here's where, holy crap, look at how much money this nonprofit is sitting on right now. 19 and a half billion cash reserved as of June, 2022. That's a year ago. They've only accumulated more money from there. All right. They also got a ton of pandemic money. They're talk they're gonna talk about that. All right. So at Ascension, Seton, you had nine hundred represented. And again, you have all their stories right here. Six hundred and fifty at the Christie St. Francis, another three hundred at Christie St. Joseph. National Nurse Nurses Organizing Committee. And I'm not always the biggest fan of National Nurses United, only because as a, as a union, they already endorsed Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, which I thought was ridiculous that they just rolled over like that. I'm going to call them out on that, but they need help. Um, these nurses need help. And then you has 225,000 members nationwide, which is crazy because if there are 128,000 registered nurses in Texas, how many are there across the whole country? 40,000 in Kansas. That's already 225,000. All right. Uh, and then you affiliates also include California Nurses Association, D.C., Michigan, Minnesota, and New York State Nurses Associations. So I don't think they represent all nurses, but they're probably they're one of the largest unions that do represent nurses. They're vocal. Um I love that they're standing up for, for nurses here. Oh, I got to call one other thing out, by the way. Uh, let me let me go back to this real quick. This picture, what is up? What's wrong with this picture, folks? There's a date. Um, There's a date I mean, above it. Yeah, this is, is winter. It's like July. It's, it's like July, uh, Yeah, they don't homie. look like June. And, and, and what's up with that? Gloves, hat, you could not find hot. any, you could not find any organizing shots from before. Where was that strike at? This one, I'm guessing, was in Wisconsin. Texas? This is not oh, in okay. Texas. Well, then maybe. I'm guessing that this is Wisconsin from the wintertime because they're not wearing hats in June striking. And what's funny is, is a lot of the yeah. nurses' pictures. The other thing those I, hospitals... Those hospitals are cold. The hospitals are just freezing. That's how it works. The other thing that I thought you know? that was really funny was it's 2023 and a nurse is wearing a yeah. cloth mask, like not even a paper, like sure. surgical mask. Okay. All right. Yep. All right. I thought these are supposed to be the medical professionals. Sorry, folks. Um, yep. had to call that one out too. All right. So, um, 
That was just funny that I saw that. But there were some inspiring worker stories this week. And she's wearing her summer mittens. Right? Um, um, all right. Unions everywhere. And we like unions everywhere. We should have unions everywhere. But what am I talking about? Uh, let's go back and let's get to... Right. Uh, this was in... Truth Out, which is an Indie Media Award honoree. That is not the sound that we're used to hearing for that. I don't know what's going on with your soundboard. Yes, it is. That's, that's literally used... that sound. That's not what I just heard. I hear... I think it's accelerated. Are you at like five oh, times okay. speed? Are you at like 5x speed, dude? No. Okay. So something, no. some, some, something not right with that. All right. So let me go back here. Let's get to our historic article here about any historic first workers unionize at two major farmers market nonprofits. So it's like happening. It's happening. This is in truth out. Like I said, Ella Fassler. Despite providing essential services, wages and benefits for these workers lag far behind those of other city workers. So you've got our farmers market workers. That was at Plant Masters in Columbia Heights, D.C. So Colin probably has been to these. But this year, workers from Grow NYC and Fresh Farm, two sustainable food access nonprofits in New York City and the Washington, D.C. metro area, respectively, formed unions. Workers who support and organize farmers markets, compost programs, and other initiatives will begin collectively bargaining for higher wages and job scrutiny in the coming months for the first time in the history of the industry. So in New York City, it all began last spring with a few informal conversations during a period of organizational turmoil at Grow NYC, which is, I've never heard of, a nonprofit that makes about 70 green market. I think I have. They organize about 70 green market farmers markets, city's composting program, food box programs sourced from local local farms in lower income areas, educational programs about zero waste and community gardens and more. Wow. And their jobs aren't easy. It sounds like they're not. <clears throat> farmers market workers set up and break down tents. They manage the EBT food stamp system. And ensure that busy markets run smoothly, sometimes working 12-hour days. Individual vendor tents are run by farmers and distributors, not Pro NYC. Compost drivers wake up at dawn to navigate notoriously difficult streets of New York City. Yeah, well, the later they have to go, the more traffic they have to deal with. All right, so they are workers who are providing essential services to the city. And that's one of the compost site coordinators who was involved in the early stages of unionizing and they are receiving money to uh, city money to provide essential services. That's awesome. It's easy to look at MTA workers or sanitation workers who are doing really similar stuff and look at the benefits that they've have compared to what these people have. It's very easy to see that they're being exploited. My answer is wrap it into one of those other organizations. That way you can pay them the same. But in addition yep. to discussing exploitation, some workers talked about how management lacked an understanding of day-to-day -day realities on the ground. 
a problem typical of many hierarchical organizations. Yeah, we've, we've certainly talked about that here. Others lamented their seasonal yep. or part-time status, right? And hierarchical status organizations, it, you know, horizontal organizations seem to be better, but somebody's got to step up and lead at some point. And I don't, I'm not sure exactly how that works. Somebody has to be like designated as the leader. By every, hmm? Diagonal. How about diagonal? We go with diagonal. Well, then there's instead then of there's horizontal or vertical circular firing squad, right? Um, there's, there's that type of, mm. yeah. So some people have the opinion that it's not going to be useful to have police at the markets. Right. And we need something a little bit better when it comes to dealing with security. And that's for sure. Um, yeah. A, right. These discussions quickly evolved into Hell's angels probably would do a better job. Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, first they talked about security. Then they involved into more formal meetings with the intent of unionizing, and more and more coworkers were invited to the meetings. And it's just grown and grown and grown to the point where we have a super majority of support, and we outgrew the space where we were meeting. We've been having larger meetings every week. This is organizing. Wow, folks! Like actual workers getting together every week, dedicated to working together, and. You know, getting more out of, in this case, the city. So Citra Bowman, who's a Grow NYC education and, ed and engagement lead in the Zero Waste Schools Department, she told Truth Out that workers approached her about the union in February of this year, and she was immediately interested, especially in light of management's rejection of her and her coworkers' request for a pay raise. <laughs> yeah. Unreal. So she was also thinking about the benefits that she has as a full-time worker in general and how some of her coworkers in other departments don't get those benefits because of their part-time status. Um, so on April 25th, about only about a year after Hotchkiss and his workers started organizing, nearly 200 of Grow NYC's employees, which is the overwhelming majority, sought voluntary recognition of their union through the RWDSU which is the Retail Wholesale and Department Store Union, which is the same union that organized the Amazon Alabama workers last year and recently won election filings at three Barnes & Noble stores and three REI stores. Well, my guess is that Barnes & Noble isn't going to be around much longer, but that's my own guess, personally. Um, I hope that they are, but Alabama. for those workers. But yes, Alabama, as you love to say. After 24 hours passed without the union receiving voluntary recognition... Workers filed for a union election with the NLRB. So while Grow NYC's president and CEO Marcel Van Uyen said that the nonprofit would accept Ooh, the union yeah. in a statement, it also hired the infamous union-busting firm Linder Mendelson, Littler Mendelson, Littler Mendelson. Wow. Yes. I'm having a I'm having a tough time. Littler Mendelson. Littler Mendelson. Dude, this it's yeah. There's. Thanks. And yep. for, for a couple of weeks, it was unclear whether a struggle was on the horizon. <laughs> so shortly after releasing the statements, Grow NYC disputed its employees' characterization of their jobs, according to the New York Times, and claimed its lowest paid worker earned $20 an hour, not 19 as workers had said. Van Uyen makes 270000 a year, according to tax filings. From the mm. nonprofit. Okay? So yeah. then, then on May 16th, 
Grow NYC workers announced that their union had won recognition. Cool. Workers at Grow NYC will begin bargaining their first contract swiftly as a result. Uh, companies at any time can voluntarily recognize a worker union. Doing so expedites the process of union representation and the process and the pathway to a union contract. I mean, that's that's the key. And somebody was actually saying on Twitter that it takes an average of like over 400 days from the time that a union election happens till uh, a first contract is negotiated with the with the company usually. Um, just months prior, Fresh Farm, which is the nonprofit in the D.C. area, went through a similar process. So now you've got a template for this. On February 8th, 23, about 25 farmers market workers announced the formation of a union with the UFCW, Local 400, right? Fresh Farms leadership did not interfere with the organizing process and workers will collectively bargain for better pay and more job stability, according to DCist, which is kind of a Libby magazine, to be honest. But they also do some really good investigative yep. stuff. We've covered a couple of their articles over the years on, God, it's already been, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary at the end of the summer, folks. So, both, yeah. both successful union drives come at a time of resurging interest in labor organizing. The NLRB reported a 53% increase in election petitions from fiscal year 21 to 22. So we see that, and according to Gallup's most recent poll, 71% of Americans approve of labor unions, right, which is the highest recorded figure since 1965. That's awesome. Great. Approving of them is one thing. Actually, like organizing to join them is different, but nonprofits are among the industries seeing increasing election filings with workers often citing low pay, overwork, and undemocratic workplaces. In some cases, yeah, they've progress, been exploited yeah. like wow. nonprofit. Like, I mean, it's almost well, like it said it above, but shh, Zordon, it's okay. It's gonna be all right. Um, telegram. How do I ignore? Do not disturb. There we go. So in some cases, progressive employers, <clears throat> TYT, weaponize their own organization's charitable mission. No, they don't. They're, they're, they're not charitable. Against their own workers in attempts to sabotage organizing. Right. Well, we're a nonprofit. Don't make us pay anymore because then we won't be able to have as many people. We won't be able to provide as many services. They start to hold you hostage. Many young people organizing their workplaces are not only seeking better material conditions, but also democratizing their workplaces, sometimes altering the nature of their work. At White Electric, which is a cafe in Providence, Rhode Island, workplace demands for racial equality, uh, racial equity in the wake of the George Floyd uprising led to a unionization effort, which eventually resulted in the workers taking over the cafe and transforming it into a co-op. Hell yeah. Good. Bowman said influencing Dude. the direction of the nonprofit is part of a bigger conversation that has been brought up a bit in the union. Yeah, that'd be good. We're thinking about our mission, how we can help support that mission and make it more sort of profound and really community oriented versus something that's top down, said Bowman. I like hearing that. All right. So many Grow NYC workers are passionate about food justice and hoping that unionization will help better serve help them better serve this mission. And 
they said they took on this job because they're passionate about the environment and food access and wanting to serve better, you know, to better serve people. Um, this is Menjivar, right? Um, and, and as I was only able to do so much with what I was given, um, I have a better outlook on the future and also on the job of being able to serve people better. I mean, really, these... <laughs> They've been, they're practically volunteers I and mean, they get paid, but they get paid a lot less than all these other city workers. So shout out to all these organizing. These are farmers market workers that get paid, but they're getting paid less than other people that are delivering services to seniors and to other, um, to EBT um, uh, eligible folks. So it's possible that labor organizing at Grow NYC at Fresh Farm will spark a national trend within the industry. Let's hope so. Many other U.S. cities have similar organizations. In Boston, Farmers Markets supports more than 200 markets. Advocates for increased grants support fresh food access and manages three farmers markets. So there's all these different um, co-ops or sustainable economic enterprises and Green City Market in Chicago and part of the city farmers market. I had no idea that there were like these, they're nonprofit Okay, so Heart of the City is managed cooperatively by the farmers themselves with the mission of making fresh food accessible for low-income customers. That's incredible. Um, so despite popular support of unions, the portion of workers who are unionized, just 10.1% is a record low. That's the thing I wanted to talk about, which is that, like, we're all hot and bothered and everybody's excited about unions, but... 10.1%. Man. We could unionize Amazon or Walmart. What about the 10%? Nationwide. That's that that's the goal. We've got to get one of these top top level mass employers to organize and unionize across all their facilities and all roles. And that's going to be hard. I mean, yep. Already you've got Amazon, you've got Teamsters in some facilities. You've got RWDSU in some facilities. You've got Amazon Labor Union. You've got SEIU. You've got um, the, the there's another one, the one in North Carolina, uh, call Amazon Cause, and th those are just the ones that we know about that I know about myself. And I'm sure there are others. Um, I'm guessing AFL CIO is probably trying to do something with them as well. So it's all the major labor organizations are trying to help organize Amazon. But what they're not necessarily doing is bringing it all together. I know that um, the Teamsters, for example, have made it a concerted effort to organize the drivers for Amazon and the pilots for Amazon and, and the transportation workers, for example. But not necessarily the office workers or the warehouse workers. And then you're going to be putting pitting union against union within the organization. And that's when you have real problems. And I think that that might be the goal of the neoliberals of government of not only that, it creates a level of middle management infrastructure across all of these unions that all have different, you know, interests and, and different primary interests. Um, it's really complicated, I, obviously, you know. What do you think, man? 
labor. <laughs> like, Thanks. it just seems. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know, I know, you know what I mean. It's just like terrible. Like, uh, where are their tactics? Like, you know what I mean? Like, what is big labor doing? What are they doing? Where are they? Um, you know? Yeah. Well, RWDSU was helping these guys. Um, so you've got some big Hold labor involved, but that's their Help. local. That's the local. I don't know how how much involvement they're getting from national and how far down the chain this this flows. But RWDSU also yeah. began representing 12 workers at a Long Island vineyard, which is the first farm workers union in New York State. Two years after that law was passed, which is the Farm Laborers Fair Practices Act. Farm Laborers Fair Labor Practice, F FLPA, from New York State. It is illegal for farmers to unionize in most states, for example. Did you know that? I'm sure Monsanto has written all those checks. You know? Wonder why. So, I guess that could technically create a monopoly yeah. on food if you have a union brothers. of. Yeah, but if you have a union of actual farmers that could control the banana, the bonans market, for example. Sure. So. Uh, the orange market. I don't know. But Girl NYC sees itself as part of these larger agricultural struggles. Uh, right, they see workers at Trader Joe's. They see workers like the United Farm Workers, who have also well, been organizing. Hmm? What the farmers in Netherlands, in in the Netherlands, have been doing, uh, and the Dutch farmers, well, and that kind of like unionization effort of them. They've been protesting the government and getting so arrested. If you is can what call I saw. it that, yeah. So. Wait, what? The block list? Somebody's on a block list somewhere? Check out chat. I don't know what's going on over there. Okay, so, oh yeah. I don't either. So, instead of one day left, now they're still, they have one day left, but it's like less than that. They have hours left to raise 12 grand, and I, I hope they do it. You know, Truthout is, is a really important outlet. Um, <clears throat> there was another unionization story that I have here real quick that Loma Linda University Medical residents are voting yes on a union. So unionization is happening across all different industries and different types of workers that people hadn't even really thought about unionizing before. And that's something else that I wanted to point out in as a part of this story. Um, that they won after years of hard work, they finally did it. All right. Um, that in the culmination of a months-long organizing effort, resident physicians at Loma Linda University Health that's L-L-U-H, and that, which they say throughout the rest of the thing. They voted to unionize on June 22nd, and that historic vote is the latest chapter in the most prominent recent showdown between a Seventh-day seventh Adventist healthcare institution and organized labor. So we talked about the nurses at Ascension. Here's yep. another one at Loma Linda University. Again, using their religious nonprofit, According to the NLRB, the final margin was 361 in favor and 144 against. Approximately two-thirds of the 805 eligible resident physicians submitted a ballot. So after years of hard work, they finally did it. That's awesome. 
So the outcome is not yet certified and is subject to review, including a federal court. And you can be sure that Loma Linda and the seven-day Adventists will try to stall and drag and do all the union-busting tactics that everybody else does and likely challenge that as well. Let's see. Organizers yep. first collected enough signatures, so you know they have to do cards and collect cards in February. But LLUH, like I said, challenged the effort in court and in LR NLRB proceedings. Throughout a 12-day hearing in March and April, they made their case to the NLRB that the me that medical residents are students rather than employees, and that as a religious education institution, it can't be forced to negotiate with the union. Is that like the how they had to throw out the money changers from the church? Is that literally what they're what they're saying here? Wow. Maybe. In a separate lawsuit against the NLRB, beginning in federal district court and later appealed to the Court of Appeals of the DC to the DC Circuit Court, LLUH made similar arguments. But on May 25th, a panel of three judges denied their request for an emergency injunction and expedited appeal. With the court declining to intervene, the union vote was set to continue. So that's from Portside, also a good outlet. During the lead-up to the election, LLUH continued to try and convince residents to vote no. And they said that voting for the union is a yes vote to giving away your voice to a union with no experience dealing with private religious educational institutions. That's what one union-busting brochure said. I quote, are you leaving yep. a legacy or years of legal issues? <laughs> wow. Interviews with Spectrum, who picked this up via Portside, or who Portside picked this up from, right? residents in favor of unionization have cited long hours, poor working conditions, and low pay as motivating factors. LLUH increased the benefits package for residents in early this year, which is a move that some have said was too little too late. Literally too little. And definitely too late. Their religious status has also been a key element of the labor hearings and court cases. The institution cited writings by Ellen White against unions and elicited testimony from the Adventist leaders about the church's historical anti-union stance. Why? The union countered... Oh, Jesus Christ. Yep. The union countered that medical residency programs don't require participants to be members of the Adventist church or promote any specific... Adventist teachings. Okay, so then why do they get nonprofit status? And according to one document shared during the NLRB hearing, less than 20% of the approximately 800 residents are Adventist. I'm not surprised. Are there 800 resident Adventist res residents across the entire country? I would guess probably not. Maybe in a country of 300 million, but I don't know. A corporate restructuring in 2012 has factored into these arguments. The Loma Linda University Health Education Consortium, this is where it gets really legal and businessy, and I don't want to get into all this, but they formed a separate legal entity from the medical center and the rest of the university. Right, So past legal cases mm. have granted stronger religious freedom claims to educational institutions rather than healthcare facilities. So this now is its own... You know, a health education consortium. So, yeah, it's now considered like an educational institution. So, 
that's one of the reasons why they separate that is so they can get away with that nonsense. Gotta keep them separated. Man, so this month, 2,500 residents and fellows at Mass General Brigham, which is one of the largest programs, voted to form a union also. That's awesome. 10,000 members in the last two years have been added to the the Committee of Interns and Residents, which is the largest resident union in the United States. So again, we've got medical residents organizing. We've got farmers market workers organizing. We've got nurses that are already organized that are walking out and starting to really demand change from their employers. And I think they're going to get it. I mean, unless those hospitals can can find a way to hire scabs, um, yeah, um, they're going to get it. Because where else are they going to get these qualified nurses? They need to provide care. And the good thing, actually, in this case, for capitalism, is that these are for-profit corporations and that all these executives want to retain their jobs. And if people aren't working and the company's not making money, guess what? They're going to end up losing their jobs in the end. So they've got to get this fixed. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, coffee? Mm, yeah. No, actually, that wasn't because of coffee. That was because I was just looking at the time and I realized that, wow, we're running late. So, <laughs> mm, damn. All right. Mm. So, coffee. <laughs> mm, coffee and damn, we're running late. All right. So, we're done with this story. <laughs> Damn you. Okay. I know Likey. You're, you're mean. Damn you, Tom Cruise. Damn it. Help me, Tom Cruise. Help me, help help me, me Tom Win- Cruise. Help me, Oprah Winfrey. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. <laughs> you're not on fire, <laughs> Ricky Bobby. Oh, my God. Why wouldn't you just say you'd eat the tiny pancakes? Oh. <laughs> You're all ben wonderful Pancakes. people. Rick Solis is laughing at my coffee. Yes, everyone. Uh, I am. I'm hopped up on Mountain Dew. Mm. I'm all hopped up. I mean, on can Mountain someone? Dew. Can someone actually like go back through all of our shows and every time you hear Indy <laughs> Satan right after he <laughs> drank coffee, all the little coffee pauses. You could do that for me and then put that into a into a video. That'd be great. Thanks. Is Joe PPS watching? Support. Can somebody drop top. a link on Joe? He'll 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 be happy to do that. I'm guessing. <laughs> you know, he he did the misty mm, one. Mm, we're mm, fucked. Mm, we're fucked. We are. Mm, we are fucked. We are. Mm, wait, who? What? Mm. We're fucked. Yeah. So the next story, because we do need to get to a next story, is one of my favorite mm-hmm. substacks. Uh, follow the money. Is what it's literally called. It's called Lebowski. Yeah, the the money Lebowski. Um and I really enjoy this substack. It started out from like Grit Alpha or some other one that, that it started out from like the Epstein tra- Grit trial Alpha. Right? Sounds it started like- out as like the Epstein trial tracker. Then it became like Grit Alpha and it started reporting on um I vaguely stuff. remember this kind of. This is the one that like everyone was like weird on, right? Originally, it was a uh, Twitter account and an Instagram account, and then it evolved, and now it is called Follow the Money. So, what Follow the Money does, and okay. I've been shouting this this uh, publication out on Substack Notes. Follow us on Substack Notes. Um, this is on Substack. 
at the follow the money substack follow the money dot follow the money news dot substack dot com and this breaks down the infrastructure bill but the other thing that it does is it looks at stock buys by congress and major figures like cabinet members as well as lobbying who's been donating the most to lobbying over the last 90 days now i'd love i asked this guy this guy matt matt allen i've requested hey could you also indicate who's gone up or down and if that has changed and by how much in the lobbying donations and we'll see if he obliges but so he breaks down the infrastructure bill and says so what's actually in president's infrastructure investment and jobs act the iija is a historic piece of legislation that'll invest 1.2 trillion dollars in the nation's infrastructure over the next eight years the bill includes funding for a wide range of projects including roads bridges public transit broadband internet water water infrastructure and clean energy i remember over eight years the 1.2 trillion dollars over eight years is about what 150 billion a year not even 120 billion a year So basically one one Ukraine every year in this case for our roads and bridges. So I people mean, have been saying like hey partial, you could fit you could fit eight of these inside the eye of Ukraine. Um <laughs> what? After they're done, <laughs> like, yeah. Like it's the Jupiter. Like it's so, you know, anyway. The IIJA is a complex piece of legislation, and the spending will be spread out over a number of different areas. And here's a breakdown of where the big spending will be going: two hundred, uh, six hundred fifty billion to roads and bridges, including two hundred to fix the nation's most structurally deficient bridges. Important. Again, broken down over eight years: hundred billion in public transit, transit, including seven and a half to replace the nation's aging fleet of buses and trains. It's important. We should be doing that. It'll invest $65 billion in broadband internet, including $10 billion to provide high-speed internet to rural areas. Haven't we already been doing that, like, since the Obama era? More water infrastructure. $55 billion in water infrastructure, including 15 to replace lead pipes and 10 to improve water quality. How do they do that Obama. exactly? And how much are they giving to East Palestine? That's all I want to know. And then you have clean energy, which is the real boondoggle and the real Green New Deal bullshit thing. The IIJA will invest will invest sixty-five billion more than water in clean energy, including five billion to build new electric vehicle charging stations. That's a whole grift and a whole bribery scam right there, which was to get the entire US fleet to go electric, to get everyone to go electric. Only you have to burn just as much coal, coal to make the electric, and our infrastructure grid can't handle everybody going electric. But I digress. And again, two billion to develop carbon capture and storage yep. technology because Al Gore was had to get his little CCS in from the original Man Bear Pig movie. Um, How dare you! Oh, well. After she met, after Greta met this week with Zelensky, I don't want to hear a word out of, out of her. So there are pros. How dare you? Yeah. 
So the IIJA has a number of potential benefits, both for the economy and for the quality of life of Americans, which is a good thing. Again, Matt is, he looks, he's looking at this objectively. Is it for economically, the investment in infrastructure is likely to have a positive impact on the economy. It'll create jobs, boost productivity, and improve the efficiency of the economy. Additionally, the bill will help to reduce the country's reliance on foreign imports, which could save businesses money in the long run. So, of course, the Republicans are going to block all of this. You realize this, right? Um, quality sure. of life benefits. So the IIJA will improve the quality of life for Americans in a number of ways. This sounds like it was almost written by ChatGPT. The investment in roads and bridges will make it easier for safe and safer to travel, while investment in public transit will make it easier for people to get to work and school. The investment in broadband internet will improve access to education, healthcare, while investment in clean energy will reduce pollution and create jobs in the energy se- in the clean energy sector. Uh-huh. It's, so it's a jobs program? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we have other jobs that we could probably invest in, like more doctors, nurses, residents, etc., there will also be construction companies, infrastructure companies, and many other stocks that will receive big government contracts over the next eight years to complete these infrastructure projects. And on Thursday, he's going to be sending out one to their premium subscribers about those. And this is a paid substack. And of course, there are some potential drawbacks like the cost, the complexity, political opposition. What would be the impact on the economy? Okay, the investment in infrastructure will create jobs, boost productivity, like they said. Uh, it will help reduce the country's reliance on, like they, this is just repeated, uh, according to a study by Brookings, blech, it could create up to 2.7 million jobs. That's a neolib outlet. Uh, IIJ is also likely to have on trade balance positive impact because it'll be easier and cheaper to transport goods and services, which could help to reduce the trade deficit. Mm. Okay. Yeah, this it's is a chat. Geometry. This is a chat GPT written article in this case, but uh, according to a study by the American Society, <laughs> Are you sure? It sounds. Are like you it, sure? Of civil engineers, the United States has a two point six trillion dollar backlog of infrastructure projects. So let's give them one point two trillion. This backlog includes projects such as roads, bridges, water systems, and public transit. This will help to address the backlog, which will improve the quality of life for Americans. Wow, that's... And partner this with this Gray Zone article we did not that long ago, which you were on INN News for. Where all of our money is going. The gravy train. Yeah. All right, so... So it's like, while we have that backlog of things we need to be doing, you know... So one of the other things that we could... that this covers is the government contracts out there, like who's getting awarded contracts by whom. And you can look into these and be like, huh, Ford was awarded two contracts and GM was awarded a contract just last week by the GSA. I wonder what that was about. And you can actually go to the GSA website and look that stuff up. Illumina awarded a contract by the Department of Agriculture. And again, all this is provided by QuiverQuant, which I know. Illumina? Illumina, yes. It, it, they make um Illumi- the, the, the Illuminati. The Illuminati. I believe they make, <laughs> they, make ref- they make refractive lenses of some kind or um solar stuff maybe. Mm. All right, but then you have the, sure the leaders. Those lenses are making the freaking frogs gay. The leaders in government lobbying over the last ninety days, and I think you've seen some 
you'll see some pretty familiar names there. Yep. Anything, Huntington Ingalls. Anything jump out at you? I see Meta. Uh, Comcast. How about number three? Amazon. Yep. Lobbying $5.5 million the over the company. last 90 days. Lobbying the government. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he gives you, Matt gives you Meta, his uh, yep, Instagram, TikTok, POA. Twitter. I like this, or this, again, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the stock advice that they give, and they do give all kinds of disclaimers And when it comes to that. Uh, I know they do give some stock advice there. I mostly look at it for the follow the money and for the analysis and, and for the raw data that comes out of that. Um, I think that, that he's provided some really interesting insights. So um, I've got one. You know the, you know the thing. Yeah. All right. Before I get to that story, yeah. Man, I got something caught in my throat tonight. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, uh, let's see what chat is doing. Wow. Everybody's buzzing, buzzing. All right. Hey, hey. What? what? That's. What? I, I just heard some music. Yes, you did. It was it was it was her music. You know what? Do you know what music? You recommend you recognize that music? Uh, I uh, well, I certainly recognize that music. Um, that's uh, that's Jesse Jet, actually. As a matter of fact, yeah. so so Tara is staying in Russia, and Tara wrote an article this week, and I figured I would read it. For her, and uh, not many people have been talking about it and and shouting her out and talking about what's happening to her over there. So I know she wanted to write this. Um, so let's get over to RT, which is where she wrote this op-ed this week. All right, so here we go. Tara Reid, Biden accuser, explains why she decided to flee the U.S. and seek sanctuary in Russia. And what's really funny is, full circle, I think one of the first times um, we read a Tara article, it was for RT, and it was right after she had joined INN. Uh, So that was in November of 2021. So she says, I thought I was going to Moscow for a week, and now it seems I'm here for the long haul. Um. So what what do we mean? Well, she says, my plan was to oversee the translation of my book, stay in Moscow for a week, and do an interview with Russia's Channel One. Then I was going to go home. So much for that. Later this summer, I was supposed to testify before U.S. Congress about President Joe Biden's actions towards me and the weaponization of the Department of Justice, best laid plans and all that. A few days after my arrival, I found myself giving a press conference stating that I could not go back to the U.S., This is because I could face charges and possible indictment for an ominous menu of kangaroo court offenses, including sanctions violations, FARA violations, and any number of other things. So there's a sealed DOG indictment against me, and I still don't know what that's about. My human rights attorney warned me that under current U.S. law, I could have sealed charges I'm unaware of until taken into custody. 
A sitting U.S. congressman mm. said that he feared for my physical safety if I come back to the U.S. She says, I decided to stay and get help from Maria Butina, a Russian State Duma member, in applying for asylum. Maria knew the terror and the grim reality of being in U.S. prisons, having spent 15 months locked up for allegedly acting as an unregistered foreign agent. They kept her in solitary confinement for months and made her life a living hell. You can actually see Tara's interview. She did several of them on INN on politics with, of survival. Um, yet Maria uh, maintained her compassion and care for ordinary Americans and saved her anger for those in charge who caused her misery. Maria had been on my podcast several times and we discussed the two-tier American justice system and its brutal use of torture. Right, Maria remained steadfast in her friendship, helped her navigate shell shock as she felt toward her own government, uh, that she felt as her own government had turned on her because she was telling the truth. First few days after Tara decided to stay in Moscow were a blur of phone calls and paperwork as she navigated her new state of being. She said painful goodbyes to her daughter as she sobbed on the phone and she was left dealing with packing up her Tara's apartment and organizing care for her three cats. Shout out to Che and a horse. Yep. Charm. Um, yep. Her daughter was amazing and efficient, even as our emotions were running high. And it was done. I was staying in Moscow with no plans to return to the U.S. At least not while Biden remains in power. My heart remained broken as I saw headlines calling me a traitor. How was I the traitor? Biden raped me, silenced me, and is now preventing me from testifying. The dizzy feeling, as I now saw, each major news outlet weigh in, settled into a despair that I was never going to really be heard. However, something that stayed with me was that I felt safe in Russia. I felt seen, heard, and respected. The first time I saw Moscow, I had 16 hours of jet lag and had been awake for 24 hours. The early morning red streaks across the sky brought me wide awake and I knew I would not sleep. Instead, I would meet the day and see Moscow in all its grandeur. I've traveled to many places in most major cities in the U.S. and Moscow stands out as one of the most beautiful, cleanest cities I've ever seen. The streets bustling with locals and tourists seemed untouched by the Western sanctions. The only telltale signs of the Western company's departures were some closed designer stores and the replacement of Starbucks with the Russian-owned equivalent simply stars and the barista lady much less brash and more modest than I'm used to. That night I slept the deepest <laughs> sleep I'd known in a very long time and I finally felt safe. <clears throat> Tara says, I'm an American who grew at a time when the United States was engulfed in leftover innocence on the domestic front while engaging in predatory foreign adventures. The neoliberal woke agenda had not yet taken hold and crony capitalism was just building to its disastrous crescendo. Like many of my generation, I was shiny with ambitious hope. I went to work for some of the most politically powerful figure figures in Western politics, Leon Panetta, and then later Joe Biden. The rest is, as they say, history with her coming forward about the latter's misconduct in 1993 and then 2019 and again in 2020. The result of my audacity in calling out the crimes of an elite Democrat were swift and brutal. 
I lost everything. And my reputation took a battery as Biden's political machine, aided by the corporate media, destroyed my credibility. I was even threatened with prison, not once, but twice. As Biden continued to weaponize his DOJ and FBI against me and others deemed me a political enemy, I continued to speak out, write a book, and even start a podcast. Again, Tara says, I always had a special place in my heart for Russia. The Russophobia and bigotry in the Western media against Russians was very disturbing to me. Then it became flat-out xenophobia. The playbook used by the elite to manipulate the press was the same, whether going after individuals like me that were whistleblowing corruption or whole nations like Russia. This method is used to vilify, isolate, and finally replace the truth with a state-approved narrative. We've certainly been talking about narratives and implementing narratives. So, Tara says that I've decided to take back control and held a press conference to proudly declare my intentions to stay in Russia. I got myself some amazing human rights lawyers who took my case under their wing and sorted through the international uh, implications. And recently, the Russian Federation granted me temporary asylum, so I've decided to stay. And we miss Tara. We love Tara. Yep. And uh, we're going to be doing the politics of survival this week on INN. So she will be back doing her podcast, which she referenced. So if you look, um, there's actually a profile here. You can find Tara Reed's work at tarareedpodcast.com. Right there, tarareedpodcast.com. Why isn't it working? Well, there's also link tr.ee slash tarareed. Boy, looks like I got a message a friend. The websites are down again. So here's Tara's links. Yep. All things Tara Reed. Check that out. Support our friend Tara. Take care of our friend. We miss you. We'll see you soon. Everybody tuned in this week. Probably sometime on Friday. We're trying to work out the logistics. I think she's got a couple of guests lined up. That's to choose for which one's going to be available and when. But uh, well, we're going to be doing that this week for sure. All right. So... <laughs> That wasn't terrible. Thank you, Miguel. Appreciate that. <laughs> that's that's a great energy. Just real, real good energy. That wasn't terrible. You know? On time, I meant. It's I not. Was, it wasn't terrible. I was looking it at wasn't the completely awful and crap. Sorry, everyone. I was looking at you the. Ta- I was looking at the clock, saying <laughs> that wasn't terrible because I thought I was running real long, and then we just kind of made that story relatively quick, and we're out by eleven thirty, which is what yeah. I really want to be. Um, I want to start getting to. Well, we're not out, out, but. No, I just meant out of stories yeah. and and into into brain bleach. So my car, yeah, get into my yeah. Oh God, it's been it's yep. been a hell of a week. Um, yes, there will be boats tonight, gamer. So yes, everybody was a little confused. I explained it last week, but let me explain it again. Uh, we are rerunning. We are gonna run boats. This segment of boats that we're gonna do now soon. Um, as its own show. We did this last Friday night and everyone seemed to have a good time with it. And I was like, you know, we've been doing this every week. And if you don't come and watch the live stream, you wouldn't even know that we do this every week. So we decided to clip it out, put a little intro and an outro on it and run it as a live stream. 
because we have the ability with our software to do that. And as good as we can, it was great. We had a good time. Uh, people had fun in chat. It was at least 15, 16, 18 people watching it live the whole time. And, um, and yeah, come if you, if you miss it on Sunday night, you know, you can tell people, Hey, you don't have to necessarily go back to the live stream. You just watch it when it, when they read it live. Now this week, because Tar is going to go live on Friday, I think we're going to move boats to Tuesday night. It's July 4th. Jesse and I are not going to do a show, and we really didn't have anything scheduled for live for Tuesday night. So we're going to move boats to Tuesday night for this Tuesday night only. And then we're likely going to keep it Friday nights, 10 o'clock, because it's a good entrance into the weekend, I think. So, um, okay. I mean, we also have a backlog of boats you could grab too, but I do. I do. But I actually have to edit and make those in order to do that and figure I'll just do that with this week. And yes, we can certainly do that. Um, Reef actually has a rumble channel that has like 20 or 30 different uh, segments of boats that we, I started doing that and making yeah. him a channel and nobody was watching it and he wasn't sharing it. So I just kind of gave up kind of stopped because it was time. Got other yeah. stuff to do, you know, doing network and other shows and we got more stuff we're working on. Angel, uh, Angel Rivera, who may or may not be in chat. Shout out to Angel on do- INN. Hmm? American tradition Friday then. Um it's a American tradition. Yeah. Well, I don't know if Jesse's necessarily available for that. Um, but that would be cool. Or if Michigan isn't on fire. I'm on fire. Yeah. I'm on fire, Ricky. You're not on fire, Ricky Bobby. So <laughs> help me Tom Cruise. Help me Tom Cruise. All right, everyone. So we got some links. Um, Linktree's IndieLeft.media but you can also go to linktr.ee slash IndieLeft I don't know what the heck's going on with our links I gotta reach our guy IndependentLeft.shop IndieMediaAwards.com IndependentLeft.gg is the Discord <laughs> and then of course you got IndieLeftMedia, IndieMediaToday that's our substack and you're gonna we're gonna get to that IndieMedia.today is our substack independentleft.gg get to discord and live is going to be every day this week live sort of and go to substack.com slash at indie news network to contact to connect with us on substack notes but okay so this week tomorrow tomorrow night uh crab and chris are going to do politically homeless tuesday night we're going to rerun He's homeless we're going to do uh, boats, smashing into other boats as a show and run that from 10 till about 11-ish. Uh, I yes, news. You ever, normally, we'll be running those Friday. So if you ever miss boats from this week, you can catch them live Friday as well. Wednesday night, so, um, INN News with uh, Reef and Yeti Jesus will be sitting in for Colin, who's on vacation this week. Enjoy yourself down in Atlanta, Colin. Thursday night, we're going to have Brett and Turks with Chris. Mm-hmm. Friday afternoon, uh, Angel Rivera will be launching a new show. Uh, well, well, rebranding and relaunching his show. Um, it was called The Handsome Cynic. I'm not going to tell you what the new one is called, but we're going to be debuting that on Friday afternoon. At some point on Friday, Tara, the politics of survival, Tara Reed, our sister, will be coming back with another show, another interview Saturday night. Hopefully she feels better this week. Shout out to Comrade Misty. 
Uh, there was no bitch last night because she was she's been under the weather and puking her guts out for thirty six hours. Hope she's feeling better. Um, last night we yep. ran we we ran Angel's stream at night. It turned out to do better than when he was live, which is funny. And of course, next Sunday night at uh, ten o'clock, we'll be back here for how do we miss that? So check out the clips all week. Yep. Check out the Substack all week. That's what what I had written down here. Tara will be sometime Friday. I don't know when exactly. We're, we we got to figure out what the logistics and the schedule of her being in Moscow, what exact time we're going to be able to do. But um, yeah, man, uh, this was this was fun, and we're we're out right in about the right amount of time. Um, Jilly Love, sorry, sorry you you showed up a little late, but uh, hopefully you can go back and watch. We did a few stories. We had some fun watching watching some. Fringe and some funny Reddit stuff with boats smashing into other boats. And, uh, but yeah, so yep. this has been episode 86. So 86, the 86. And, uh, I'm going to say to keep questioning everyone's motivations. And I fucking hate it here. Keep listening. Little birds have to tell you. Mwah. Ciao, baby. <laughs> Julia, Julia, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> Indie News Network, collaborative family of independent content creators, co-hosted only by me, Indie. I'm founder and editor of Indie Left News and Indie Media Today. I got Reef Freeland sitting next to me. Back at Indie News. It's Andrew Rivera on the Handsome Cynic. It's politics and survival. Uh, my name is Jesse Jett. It's American tradition. Stop Space Monkeys. Welcome to Political Fight Club. I'm Robert Durden. I mean, I mostly make Gord Brian and. Big Man Crab Joe. Keep up those great videos. Hey guys, it's Yeti. Uh, coming at you. Hello, my name is Lucy from Big Moon Red Wine. This is Chris Legion. I think I liked it better being blind When I couldn't read between the lines And when I couldn't see the cracks in the structure That lay bare before me the whole time I think I liked it better back when I Suspended disbelief and swallowing pride I thought I knew the difference in the red from the blue But they both bleed us so dry both bleed us so dry My favorite songs don't hit the same way I get to the end of a four minute track And I'm only looking back thinking What did they actually say?